Hello, I'm Greg, and a short introduction today for a talkback episode to Inappropriate Conversations number 9. Part of the reason for that is that uh, this is a fairly long original episode, running, uh, I guess the original runtime was about 54 minutes, and also it kind of connects to the previous one. So Inappropriate Conversations 8 and 9, while not part 1 and part 2 of the same topic even, seemed to me at the time, and maybe even now, to have a certain connection to one another. And the introduction will deal with one of the connections that look back to the previous episode and the Christian non-response to the sexual revolution. This one is an overview of the decades, taking a look at uh, kind of the assumptions we make, many of them false assumptions, that an entire decade can be wrapped up into one idea, whether that be hippies or the me culture or anything else. And at the time that I was originally doing these recordings, this one, the ninth one, was probably the best received of the first 10 or 20 Inappropriate Conversations episodes. As I tend to mention when I share these really old ones, this one going back to May 3rd of 2010, any reference to the best way to access the website is, you know, out of date. To me, www.inappropriateconversations.org is the way to go. Um, inappropriateconversations.com as a redirect for the same. That's the better way to go. It's also possible that if I'm making any references to other podcasts that I'm enjoying and listening to, including promotional clips to divide up and break up the topic, you know, the further back you go, the more likely it is that some of those podcasts don't exist anymore. So kind of that's the warning about sharing an old show. When I knew that I was going to release a talk back for Inappropriate Conversations 8, I knew at the time that number 9 would soon follow because I kind of liked to keep them together, meaning that failing to have all of my ducks in a row to record a podcast that looked back on the coronavirus experience of 2020 in a somewhat comprehensive way, or even some of the recent mass shooting events, not being ready for those topics meant that the next couple of episodes would be talkbacks. And here we are. But I don't want to completely ignore the fact that around the time enough people felt vaccinated enough to be interacting publicly in very real ways, we suddenly find ourselves in a situation where a lot of those people are um, losing their temper, cooler perspective, going into public places with heavy uh, gun weaponry and large arsenals, large uh, ammunition counts, and murdering lots of people that perhaps the difference between last year at this time and this year at this time could be isolated to the fact that more people last year were worried about catching a virus that had no vaccine or cure and staying away from other people. Social distancing had the kind of the side effect of really putting a clamp down on mass shootings. It's hard to have a mass casualty school shooting situation when no kids are going to school in person, for example. The one that I want to cite, though, is a post I just reshared on Facebook at the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page today. I'd previously shared it when it was originally a topic of conversation on Twitter. This goes back about a month to somewhere between the 17th and 21st of March, where a writer named Chrissy Stroop was speaking into the murders that happened in Atlanta, where a uh, son of a pastor had gone on a killing spree and claiming the self-defense of sex addiction. And that's kind of what I wanted to mention briefly as this intro and how it connects to the problem of purity culture, 
the only maybe real response of American Christianity to the sexual revolution was some really, really weird stuff related to the exaltation of virginity, um, purity rings, uh, fathers presumptively um, marrying their daughters in ceremonies where their daughters were pledging to their parents that they wouldn't have any sort of sexual contact prior to marriage. And that even when I encountered some of this talk in church, in youth groups, Sunday school, when I was growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, you'd see this conversation where if I were to ask the question, which I often did just to be confrontational, of what is sex defined for me? What is a purity culture presuming that it's giving up? You couldn't get a single strong consensus answer to that question. There were, in other words, people on the streets where I grew up, in both of the houses I lived in when I was going to grade school, even all the way through high school, it wasn't hard to find somebody who would have considered kissing your girlfriend on the front porch some sort of a sexual act that was violating some sort of purity culture concept that she had um, you know, pledged to her parents and other sort of really, really strange ideas. We see these strange ideas morph in concepts around consent as well, and in the past, I've recorded episodes of Inappropriate Conversations kind of dealing with kind of the problem of Christianity denying that consent is a meaningful, viable issue, uh, particularly when it comes to human sexuality. And once you sort of dismiss consent as a piece of human sexual relationships, then you just, things can quickly go off the rails. The article from Stroop, published in uh, March 17th of this year, uh, religiondispatches.org under the headline Don't Discount Evangelicalism as a Factor in Racist Murder of Asian Spa Workers in Georgia. Just going with the lead. Today, America is still reeling from the news of the mass murder of eight people at massage parlors in Georgia. Many are rightly calling the shooting spree an act of white supremacist terrorism, as the victims targeted were Asian women. The moment I read that the man who confessed to the murders was the son of a youth pastor who told police he had a, quote, sex addiction, unquote. However, it struck me that we must not ignore the specifically evangelical Protestant contours of this story, quoting Stroop. He goes on to quote Joshua Grubbs, an assistant professor of psychology at Bowling Green State University, who has said, among other things, that uh, purity culture places heavy emphasis on the temptation and evil and pornography is considered evil and something to be eliminated. And given that framing, Grubbs said, it's not surprising that someone might well view all sexual temptations as evil and needing to be eliminated. I would not call this person a victim of purity culture, Grubbs elaborated, but it is possible that he is a product of it. So just to put that idea out there, that sometimes, uh, more and more it seems, that this racist white supremacist violence we're seeing has an evangelical Christian undertone to it, if only because it's tie-in to Republican Party politics. But purity culture in particular plays a role in this one and in some of the other cases of, you know, what you might call family annihilator kind of killings, where if somebody is um, you know, one of these men who's grown up on the male side of purity culture, commits adultery, he may be, yeah, at least one of the options rolling through his head seems to be killing my wife and kids and killing myself to make the world a better place. This is all a really sinister underbelly 
of the Christian non-response to the sexual revolution. And I know this firsthand because I walked through different churches and was part of youth groups throughout my time in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And that growing up in that way has given me a perspective about the decades that I'll share now in this Talk Back episode. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about decades, those damned 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s or even now. First, a few house cleaning matters. As you may have noticed, this is the first episode I've released that carries an explicit tag. It's not necessarily because I used the word damn in the title. It's more because I need to talk about a song that I've referred to a couple of times already, but I'm finally going to tell you the name of this song, The Dead Kennedys' Chicken Shit Conformist. It's an interesting idea, though, that over the past maybe three weeks, I've mentioned some fairly explicit ideas, particularly talking about the sexual revolution. And I've mentioned those ideas using what we would might consider to be standard uh, medical or scientific language. And therefore, in the United States of America, that's fair game, and it doesn't require any explicit tag, regardless how adult that information might be. But because I just used the word shit in the title Chicken Shit Conformist, now all of a sudden, this becomes the single most explicit thing that I've ever referred to. I think you're going to be disappointed if you come to this episode expecting a lot of very um, prurient information communicated. You're probably better off with last week's show. Instead, what I want to focus on this time is the concept that from decade to decade, certain trends emerge, and those trends kind of lead the country in one direction or another. And because of the size and the cultural influence that the United States tends to have, I don't always mean a positive influence either. Sometimes this uh, influence of the decades spills out over the rest of at least the Western world. But let me first put my foot down and say that I do not believe that it's a good idea to put your faith in time. So in one sense, there's no such thing as a decade. I also don't believe that trends start and stop exactly on 10-year cycles. But more importantly, I don't believe that there is such a thing as the good old days. And I certainly don't think that we should make any of our decisions based on good old days that probably never existed. To give you a sense of how strongly I feel about this, I want to take it in a science fiction direction. Imagine for the sake of argument that we actually do have time machines. This is not actually a a hardcore sci-fi concept. If you pay attention to some of the commercials you see on TV, even concepts uh, like time machines are creeping into ads for soft drinks like Coca-Cola and, and you know Bud Light, which may as well be a soft drink. So the time machine idea is this. If you could jump 50 or 60 years into the future, I think we would all expect to see some pretty scary stuff. But the argument that I'm going to make is if you jump 50 or 60 years in the past, what you might see could frighten you even more. But first to explain that, let's begin with the concept of time travel altogether. Again, not from a science fiction perspective, but from an interpersonal perspective. If you could jump forward one year, what would be on your list of priorities? 
What would you be looking for? What would you do? Wouldn't your exploration of this you know, new world you've leapt into from a time perspective really be all about specific things? You know, do I still live in the same place? Do I still have my job? What if I see future me? Uh, how am I supposed to interact? It would be very, um, you know, point and time and very specific. Likewise, if you jumped into the past, even just the one year, there might be very specific things you'd be looking for. Uh, you might have certain things that you said or did that you wish you hadn't. Maybe this would represent a chance to undo some things. Maybe there'd be some opportunities that you missed. Maybe you, you know for a fact that you showed up late for something, and if you'd only been on time. You know, going back one year gives you a specific opportunity to deal with very particular things. So the, the closer in the time travel idea goes, the more likely you are to be looking at something that is you know, relatively micro in nature. But if you went back a lot further, if you went back 50 or 60 years, I think that the issues then become much, much bigger. It's not like you're going to jump 60 years into the future and the first thing you're going to want to do is find your old house and see if you still live there. You're probably going to want to ask bigger questions like, where are the flying cars? I ask the question that way because I personally feel that we're not just a mere five decades away from flying cars. I would venture to guess that if you have any kind of a creative mind at all, going 50, 60 years into the future is not going to present you with a lot of huge new concepts. You'll have to deal with big changes, and it's those macro changes that you'll probably be investigating. But I don't think it'll be quite as crazy as anything on the Jetsons. However, if you jumped back to the middle of the 1950s, I think you might find that you'd be surprised by how different the culture you encounter is. And you might be no more prepared to deal with that than you would be to deal with any of the history you missed if you skipped over all those decades going forward in time. In fact, I'll lay it on the line. If you were a middle-aged, independent, black, single female who was either a lesbian or bisexual, there is no time travel jump you could take that would be more frightening or more dangerous to use an individual than going back 55 years. Think about it for a second. You're a female. You're going back to a point in time where you are not welcome in the workplace. You are uh, you know, a minority. We're going to talk about this in some detail. In fact, my wife has a friend who suggested that if I really wanted to have an inappropriate conversation, if I really wanted to blend topics that are not welcome at the dinner table, politics, religion, sex, those are great. What about race? Excellent point. I don't know that I'm necessarily you know, uniquely equipped to deal with questions of race, but this friend of the family hit the nail on the head. Race is a major issue. And one of the things that I do intend to get to when I get there is the notion that all the things that happened politically in the early 1960s in America represent a huge cultural shift. If you were to jump back in time before that cultural shift, you might be shocked. We have this notion among my, uh, you know, my more liberal friends, people who are more liberal than I am, have this notion that in the, in the Americas, this red state, blue state thing is a real phenomenon. I'm not saying that it's not genuinely accurate. Um, if you look at any particular voting and election cycle, you're going to see that some states have gone in a particularly conservative direction and others have gone liberal. The difference is that I don't think that that is a, I think that's a descriptive phenomenon, not a proscriptive phenomenon. I don't think that there are states that are read by their very nature. I think they're simply read due to a lot of other factors. In other words, it just reflects what's going on there. But there are people who believe that there are certain states that will always be blue and certain states that will always be red. 
And this divide is more of a cultural difference between liberal and conservative than a political difference between liberal and conservative. Because it's not hard to demonstrate that the political differences flow freely over time. But I think that you know, my attitude is that today we view certain parts of the United States as being less welcoming and less friendly to minorities, less open-minded about liberal ideas. But if you go back into the middle of the 1950s, you might find that a big chunk of the entire country looks that way. And if we define this in terms like red state and blue state, you're going to find that more of the country was red back then. I just don't define it that way. I just think that more of the country had a less open-minded attitude toward issues that are important to women and minorities back then. Imagine, if you will, that your boss comes into your office at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and uh, it's your, your first day into this time jump, and it's the first time that you're standing in for your old self. You're trying to fit in. You're trying not to tip it off that you're from the future. But how do you react when he walks over to a cabinet in your office that you didn't even know was really there, opens up a drawer, pulls out you know two bottles of scotch, some seltzer water, and pours both of you a drink at 4 o'clock in the afternoon? Well, you know, if after you've already gotten over the fact that everybody in almost every office is smoking and that emptying the ashtrays is a really important part of the janitorial team's function, I mean, you may not be ready for this. And you might also not be ready for the dynamics of the relationship between the men and the few women who are in the office. I'm just saying it's a very different world. And when people look back nostalgically at that time and remember the things that they liked, especially if they're you know, part of what we might call the majority, both now and in the past, those individuals might not remember all the things that were a little bit more embarrassing. Because we do tend in our memory to gloss over the things that were you know, not necessarily painting us in the best light, while remembering in detail the things that give us the best mental image of ourselves and the warmest memories. So think that over as I kind of wander through the decades that I've experienced and maybe a couple before and think of it from the perspective of we shouldn't take for granted what it means to say that we've lived during that point in time. Just because you live during a particular era of time doesn't mean that you've got a perspective on it. And what I wanted to do today is to try to take a look at those decades and see if there is a perspective against it that we can pick up. So an overview of the decades. I want to work this backward from where we are today because I want to end back at the sexual revolution and try to pick up some of the topics that I might have left dangling last week. I certainly intended to imply that the sexual revolution was inevitable, and there may be some people who question how inevitable it was. Well, if when we get back to the beginning and that borderline between what we call the 1960s and what we call the 1950s, I think I'll be able to put a little more detail behind that. I also don't want to deal with the, uh, the, the decade we're in right now, either the 2000s or the 2010s, depending on how you look at it. I think that it's almost impossible to have the right amount of perspective on a period of time that you're experiencing that directly. I will say, though, that I think I might be able to rope the 1990s in with at least part of this, you know, this new millennia we're in. Because I think that the trend that I see in the 90s is still going on to a certain degree. And I would define this as a decade, particularly from a Christian perspective. This is a decade that is characterized by fear replacing faith. For the 2000s, it's very easy to point to 9-11-2001 and explain it all the way from that perspective. That maybe the big shift was when the um, terrorist attack in New York City, the, the World Trade Center plane attacks, Maybe when that happened, it did shift everyone away. And it's not hard to imagine where I'm coming from here, because the Patriot Act in the United States of America is a classic example of a country reacting in fear rather than faith, looking at the Constitution, finding it to be inadequate, and reacting to a singular event in a reactionary way. 
But this wasn't just started in 2001. Look at what was going on in 1999 with the entire Y2K hysteria. I'd be willing to wager that if you aren't somebody who had several extra cases of bottled water, perhaps even a case of tuna fish, all kinds of additional batteries, flashlights, all that sort of stuff in, in your basement or even under your bed, you surely know somebody who did. When 1999 ended, it was at my house. I, I had a party and we had a couple of uh, people from the neighborhood over. We had some friends from out of town over and uh, all of us had children. So we all had our children over and we were just going to, you know, we were going to spend the night at home. But it wasn't that unlike any other New Year's Eve. We had, you know, food, we had hors d'oeuvres, we had drinks. We were celebrating and we had the television on. We're watching a, a bowl game part of the time, watching, uh, you know, I think the University of Oklahoma play the University of Mississippi in what was really a good game. And it's a shame that bowl game happened to be on New Year's Eve 1999 when most people were listening to songs by Prince and not watching American football. But we also flipped over to watch, you know, the whole Dick Clark, you know, New Year's Eve, Times Square, that whole thing. What I did, though, is as the night progressed and the adults had had more and more to drink, every time I was sent you know, upstairs as a host to, to get anything, to bring more pretzels, to bring another round of drinks, whatever, I would just very subtly, without a whole lot of fanfare, turn off lights as I went. So that over the course of maybe the last hour or hour and 20 minutes before midnight, I had succeeded in turning off every single light in the house except the television in the, in the den that we were watching. So at this point, we're just a few minutes before midnight. And everyone's huddled around the TV. We're watching the countdown. We're looking for the ball to drop the whole nine yards. And there's not another light in the house. I've got the remote control sitting right next to me on the couch between me and the, and the couch cushions. My right hand has the remote control and the couch cushions on my other side. So no one really can see where the remote control is. And as the uh, crowd in Times Square is screaming, five, four, three, two, one, as soon as they got to one, I turned the television off. And there we are, sitting in complete and absolute darkness. And there was that, you know, that initial moment of silence. You could see a little bit of panic creep in. And before I got the reaction that I really wanted, the absolute, you know, over the top, it really happened sort of hysteria. One of the kids, the sober-minded people in the group, called out that it was, it was, you know, Dad, what are you doing? You know, you can't fool us. Well, I could fool all the adults in the room. I just couldn't fool the kids. But that's the level of potential hysteria that was in the works. This is not only, you know, a year and a half, more than a year and a half before 9-11. This was before we had any idea there would be a 9-11. So I look at the attitude that was going on in the 90s and the attitude that was going on in the 2000s as being pretty similar and being all about how do we react to fear? How do we react to perceived threats or real threats? And where does this come from? Where was this sense of insecurity? And what was it that we were trying to protect? I think you only understand that if you compare it to the 80s. The 80s, in my mind, represented a decade of excess. And you can see it pretty quickly and pretty easily whenever you look back. If you look back at the music, if you look back at the movies, it was a decade of excess. Compare the film American Pie with almost any of the comparable movies made in the 1980s. Things like, you know, Porky's, for example. And one thing jumps out at you very quickly. For all of our perception that American Pie has a lot of adult material and is you know, pretty explicit and is a very naughty film, the one thing that you see quickly when you look at those two films side by side is that American Pie has almost no nudity. Compare that to the 80s, and I used to refer to these films as teenage tit flicks because the main characters were you know, either late in high school, early in college, you know, that 
teen, early 20s kind of, kind of storylines, um, what we used to call coming-of-age storylines, although perhaps a little bit further down the line in that process, and almost all of them featured nudity. There was more excess in the 1980s than there was in the 1990s. Uh, musically, I think it goes without saying. Uh, in some ways, grunge was a reaction to peel away all of the, uh, the gloss and the sheen and the, gl- the glitter that was going on in the 1980s. So if you look back at the 80s and say, well, that was all about excess. <clears throat> There's your, your Wall Street film with uh, the uh, Gordon character saying greed is good. You have your savings and loan bailouts. And anybody who acts like what's happening in politics in America today is different or new or, you know, some kind of a tragic turn of events. It looks a lot like the 80s to me. It looks a lot like the late 80s, early 90s, where the government was bailing out savings and loans then, and now they're bailing out banks. I'm not sure I see that big of a jump. But to me, the one moment in time that really gives you a crux for this is probably the song Jeremy by Pearl Jam. Now... Even if you don't like grunge, even if you prefer to think that Pearl Jam is is not the best example of it, um, and I might be with you on those counts, Jeremy is a song well worth hearing. And if you've never heard it, at the very least, try to grab the lyrics, because the lyrics to the song give us a pretty good hint of what was different in the 90s. You've got a young kid, disturbed, and they describe him in a way that reflects that his family life is not ugly, not violent. None of the cliches you'd look for to say, well, yeah, he's just a product of a terrible upbringing. The kid was not so much a victim of of violence and abuse as he was neglect. And even the bullying that he experienced on the playground, he he reacted to. It wasn't that he was non-functional and suddenly exploded. Um, The the middle verse is, uh, this is the lead singer singing. So he's not the kid. He's not Jeremy. He's just somebody remembering Jeremy. Uh, In the Eddie Vedder voice, uh, I remember picking on the boy. He seemed a harmless little fuck. But we unleashed a lion who gnashed his teeth and bit the recess lady's breast. How could I forget? And then he hit me with a surprise left. My jaw was left hurting, and it dropped wide open, just like the day I heard. But what did he hear? What, what's the day that he's remembering? The day he's remembering, and it's, it's told very vividly in the music video. One of the better examples, I think, of, of what music videos can be. Kid shows up to class, <clears throat> tosses an apple to the teacher, and shoots as many kids as he can. So this is not a topic that we would find funny or entertaining in light of Columbine. But it's a topic serious enough to be told. Because, you know, to me, the theme of the song is in the, the bookend verses. Because the song ends with the kids screaming, try to forget this, try to erase this from the blackboard. But why did he feel invisible? Why did he feel he was being erased himself? What was he reacting to? His motivations can be seen in lyrics like, uh, Daddy didn't give attention. And the boy was something that mommy wouldn't wear. All about that idea that, to me, I think represented the 80s better than the 90s. That what you look like, style over substance, um, that a, a member of your family or, or your spouse could be an embarrassment to you if they're not wearing the right clothes. It was that sort of thing. And in a lot of ways, the 90s, as represented by songs like Jeremy, just a really full-on, two-handed push of a rejection of the ideas of excess that were so prevalent in the 1980s. So let me make something clear here. I am not blaming the 1980s for anything that happened in the decade to follow. In fact, what I want to do is communicate the exact opposite idea. Because you know what? You can trace what happened in the 80s all the way back to the 1970s. What is the difference between the excess of the 80s and the me generation? Just scope. Just scale. That's it. It's my assumption that all of us have heard of the term the me generation before. 
The me generation refers to the selfishness of the 1970s, the I'm going to get mine, you get yours, I'm going to get mine. And a lot of it comes from the kind of dejected attitude that all of the lofty sort of pie-in-the-sky notions that were coming from the 1960s when you know the, the hippie culture didn't really bring on the changes that everyone thought, or at least everyone in that culture thought, things then turned kind of inward and said, you know what, I'm going to take care of me. This is all about me. And that's where the 70s gets this notion of the me generation. So you look at the 80s and you say, well, okay, we had greediness at the corporate level that brought about savings and loan collapses and all kinds of other issues. Where does that come from? probably comes from the greediness at the individual level, which really is the biggest distinction I see between the 70s, the 60s, and the 50s. In retrospect, the 1950s had a lot more of a collectivist attitude than we tend to hear people give it credit for. Here's what I mean. For all the opposition to ideas like communism and socialism that come out of the 1950s, we refer back to that as a better era than the one that we're in now. We forget that you don't have a much better example of groupthink than the Red Scare. So for all the ideas that, well, you know, today we're, we're dealing with this socialism and this pressure to conform and all this other sort of stuff, I don't think America had a bigger pressure to conform than the 1950s themselves represented. Beyond any doubt, McCarthyism had all the negative qualities to it from a group behavior perspective than the communist attitudes that that particular movement was purportedly fighting against. So you have this group mentality, for better or worse, in the 1950s. The 1960s was like hitting that thing with a hammer, and it broke off into parts, but all the individual parts still had a group mentality. You had an entire block of people who were absolutely, adamantly, to the death, opposed to any sort of civil rights changes in our country. And likewise, you had people who, very literally, to the death, were willing to stand together and say, no, we believe in civil rights, we want to see these changes, and we're willing to lay it on the line to make it happen. Later in the decade, the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing would come around and, you know, again, split the country, probably not in two, probably in much more than just two but you ended up with these groups that were still together, and they had names. You know, they were like the hippies and the deadheads and all that other sort of stuff. And there was intersections between them, but they were still a collective group of people. You get to the 70s, that breaks down even further to the point where we're really talking about just me. So what explains that? I think it's the inevitable course of nihilism. You know, nihilism basically being, you know, the, the negating, the rejection of the standards that had come before. And eventually, when a group of people stand up, look at the uh, society they've been handed by the previous generation, and reject it, it is only a matter of time before people in that group stand up within their own group and reject the tenets of the group they're in. And if you take that to its logical extreme, you end up with every person believing he is an island. And instead of having you know, a nation, you have a, a collection of islands together. And that, to me, represents, if anything else, the 70s. And if anything, the 80s actually did represent a reaction the other way, the pendulum swinging back in the direction of groups. Because you leave the individual trying to take care of his and his own and get further ahead, and it's all about me, working with others to say, okay, it's all about us. It's all about the uh, savings and loan industry. It's all about the, you know, the, the petroleum industry. It's all about whatever group it is saying, no, we're, we've got to work together. We've got to get together to get ours we got to work together to make sure that what I need is covered. So it's that same kind of logic, but moving back in the direction of group think. So I want to play for you now the song Chicken Shit Conformist by the Dead Kennedys. I'm tempted, very, very tempted to play it all. 
And there's a reason why I think that uh, it might not be that big of a deal. It's because this song was released on an album called Bedtime for Democracy on Alternative Tentacles Records, released in uh, 1986. This is a record label that is an alternative to the major media. In fact, the Dead Kennedys released um, their maybe their second you know, official release as a quote-unquote album was a short EP. It was an EP called In God We Trust Incorporated. Now, if you're a Christian, let me be honest, this is not a recording for you. In God We Trust Incorporated has a very angry and not necessarily constructive view on, you know, I look at it as a view on televangelists, but I'm sure the band views it as a view on the state of Christianity overall. The interesting thing is, because it was punk rock, the songs are very short. And because the songs are short, you can produce an album with 8, 9, 10 songs on it, and it'll only be 15 minutes long. So that works okay as an EP, because it's not a big deal for an EP to have kind of short sides, flip one over. In fact, the times I've seen EPs where the entire playlist is identical on both sides of the album. So you have all the songs on one side, the back side has all the same songs again. So it's not unusual to see that. It becomes trickier, though, when perhaps the best-selling medium for music is cassette tape, because... Typically, what you see is a band makes an album, it's 40 minutes long, the cassette tape has 20 minutes on each side. Is it really a good way to split up 15 minutes into two sides? Really? What the Dead Kennedys decided to do with their release, In God We Trust Incorporated, was to put the entire 15-minute runtime on side A, and side B was blank. So if you buy the cassette, you flip it over, you look at the back side, it says something like, Home taping is killing big-time record label profits. Side two has been left blank for your convenience. So Alternative Tentacles was a record label that at least, if you look at their resume, they're not opposed to home taping, not opposed to the sharing of music, and also not opposed to trying to stick it to the big record labels. However, I'll play just a snippet. I want to play a snippet of this song that I've talked about before on the show that refers directly to the relationship to the 60s and the 70s. Um, he essentially says, hey, the 60s weren't our failure. It was the 70s that stunk. And as the, you know, as the plot moves on, we're digging that same exact hole. It says, the music scene isn't real life. You're not going to get rid of you know, rape. You're not going to bring down the banks. You're not going to change anything. Any change takes more time and work than changing channels on the TV set. So why are we so eager to please peer pressure decrees and make the same old mistakes again and again and then he calls his audience, actually, chicken shit conformist like your parents. Chicken shit conformist like your parents. So there's the Dead Kennedys in the 80s, the decade of excess, writing a five and a half or six minute punk song. Can there be a better definition of excess than that? Looking back to the 70s, talking about the things they felt were wrong in that decade and how the mistakes of that decade were really polluting, you know, the 80s for the, for the band. And comparing it to the 60s as being, you know, the ideal. The 60s were great, the 70s were bad. Well, I'm not here to advocate that position. As I, as I mentioned, if the 70s is the me generation, the 60s to me is a generation of nihilism. It's a generation of breaking down. Now, some of the things that were broken down needed to be broke down, and that's good. Civil rights legislation, good. Undoing the bigotry of America, not just the American South back then either, 
In fact, it's probably not just the American South right now, either. We haven't succeeded in fulfilling the promise of the early 1960s when it comes to race relations. But, you know, so the positive examples would be breaking down some things that needed to be undone. Some attitudes about women, some attitudes about people of different races or people of different cultures needed to be addressed. But it didn't stop there. And the 60s ended up being this notion that freedom itself was more important than what the freedom was fighting for. You know, I'm not a big fan of the movie Braveheart. But at the end of the movie Braveheart, when the William Wallace character being killed screams freedom, again, I'm not a fan of the movie, so I don't mind spoiling it. I'd say that I don't mind spoiling it because, well, it's a history film. You can just look up the history, but the film doesn't do the history very well either. But at the end of that film, when that character screams freedom, that only has dramatic impact and meaning if you know the freedom he wants. It's got to be worth fighting for. And the problem I've got in the 60s is that at some point, I think people lost sight of what it was they were fighting for. They were seeking freedom. And frankly, at some point, I think they were just seeking freedom from I want to get away from whatever it is I feel is holding me back. I want to get away from mom and dad. I want to get away from the government that's got us in this war. I want to get away from all this stuff. I want to reject those things. Okay, well, first off, let me defend those ideas. If you're a teenager in the 1960s, say the late 1960s, maybe you ignored the conflict in Vietnam for a while, but you can't ignore it anymore because now there's a draft. Maybe at some point in the culture of McCarthyism, that was so prevalent in the, in the decade before, you would have accepted the notion that we really need to be in this skirmish in another country, defending part of another country against another part of its own country, being um, the uh, balancing act between the Chinese influencing the northern part of the country and us influencing the south, and you would have accepted all that at face value. But the draft makes it awfully hard to ignore. The fact that you are not going to be given the choice to pick up a weapon, you're simply going to be handed the weapon and told to fight, then it becomes a lot more interesting to question, what are you fighting for? And if you come to the conclusion on your own steam, or because of the help of political activists, that there isn't that much difference morally between a Chinese aggression taking over part of Vietnam and a United States aggression taking over the other part of Vietnam, and that essentially you don't want to be the player in this chess game any more than you want to be a pawn in this chess game then it becomes pretty easy for you to come to the conclusion that the right move is nihilism. The right move is to protest, to deny, to reject. But let's take a look at the other things that were going on. Let's take particularly a look at the sex and the drugs. I'm going to ignore the rock and roll for now. I think I maybe let Jello Biafra and the dead Kennedys speak for me on the rock side a minute ago. But on the sex and the drugs side, you know, you had this uh, moral disapproval of the sexual openness, the freedom that people were expressing sexually in the late 60s during the sexual revolution. And the reason I say that that was inevitable is this. Where did it come from? It came, it came from somewhere. See, decades don't correlate to these time spans. You know, it's not, it's not that, well, uh, 10 years happened and now it's no longer 1959, it's now 1960. Or it's no longer 1960, it's now 1961. And therefore, everything has to change. No. Typically, what you see is a, a group of people at any point on the calendar or in the years reacting or rejecting what has happened before them. Let me just be very rude about it and call out something that I personally didn't experience and I personally didn't witness. Not talking about my mom and dad, not talking about my wife's parents. Um, but what I'm saying here is not going to shock a whole lot of people. 
you're looking at that decade before, the 1950s, early 60s, and what did you see? Didn't we see an awful lot more extramarital sexual behavior on the part of men in particular that we sort of understand, but we tend not to acknowledge? You know, the first time an executive and his secretary sleep together, whether it's his idea or her idea, something very wrong has happened, something that cannot be looked at from any other perspective than exploitation, simply because there's a power difference between the relationship of the two, simply because in this case, the example I'm using is a married man, so he's got commitments and promises, he's got decisions that he's made that he's now violating, worse, he's violating them in a way that is inherently deceptive and dishonest, because he's pretending that he doesn't have to own the consequences of that action. So if you're a kid living in that home, seeing the conflict between your parents over what dad is doing with his secretary, who are those two people to come along 10 years later and tell you that sleeping with your girlfriend is immoral, wrong, and unacceptable? Who is that man to throw you out of your house because of a sexual sexual decision you make in light of the sexual decisions that you know he has been making? It's those kind of questions. And even if it only happened in an isolated area, even if, even if it's only 5 or 10% of the experiences of young people growing up in their homes between the late 50s and the late 60s, it's enough. It is enough. What if it happened a lot more often than that? The whole do as I say and not as I do thing never works. Well, that doesn't explain drugs, Greg. Oh, doesn't it? Remember, I mentioned that at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it wasn't going to be unusual for, in some businesses, in some companies, the boss to show up with, the, uh, with a bottle of scotch and say, well, you know, let's recap our day over drinks. Well, you know, the, the one martini lunch, two martini lunch, it's hard to conceive of these concepts now, but back then, it might not have been all that unusual. I can say from experience that it wasn't that, that unusual of a thing, that it wasn't a shocking rarity to see the adults get home from a difficult day at work and start off, even before dinner was fixed, with drinks. So if you've got people who've, who've had an alcoholic beverage at lunch or two, had an alcoholic beverage at the end of the day, have an alcoholic beverage the second you get home, end up fairly well tanked by the time dinner's over, again, where is the moral leverage of that generation to turn to a younger generation and say, hey... You shouldn't be using illegal drugs. You know, the same generation that was fighting and arguing over whether or not people could vote at the age of 18 was at the same time passing laws making sure they couldn't drink at the age of 18. Well, help me out here, because the duplicity is clear. There was plenty of sex, drugs, and rock and roll of a sort going on in the 1950s. The 1960s just said, hey, we want the freedom to do this our way. Well, here's the problem that I've got with just pointing fingers and saying, hey, 60s were right, 70s were bad, or 60s were right, 50s were bad. Or, as my mom used to say, those damn 60s kids are about to run our country into the ground. Because I'm expressing one point of view, that I view the people in the 60s at a crucial moment in history. We have sexual revolutions, we have musical revolutions, we have you know, artistic revolutions that you can see in the stage plays of the time. I'm about to get to film here in a minute. So it's clear that something big was happening there, and I'm putting it in the perspective of something that's inevitable. I'm doing so because my elders have put it to me that that was a group of people who destroyed our country. That was a group of people who did something wrong, that they shouldn't have done what they did. They should have left these things in the closet. They should have left their sexual preferences in the closet. They should have drunk. They should have consumed drugs, not just alcohol, but, you know, Valium, whatever. 
should have consumed those drugs in the way that the previous generation had recommended that you do it. Quietly. In the closet. Not publicly. Not out loud. And by all means, with no nudity and no profanity. Um, Take the nudity and the profanity out of it. So where do we stand? Are those quote-unquote hippies and 60s kids the, the problem? Or were they nothing more than a reaction to the things that were going on? Were they, in some degree, inevitable? Well, let me hit it from this angle. First, the perspective of a theologian, at least I consider him to be a theologian, named Oz Ganes, who in a book called Time for Truth, had this to say about freedom. Negative freedom is always limited and incomplete without positive freedom. Freedom from requires the complement of freedom for. That is why, long ago, the Roman Tacitus wrote, The more corrupt the state, the more the laws. That is what Benjamin Franklin meant when he wrote, Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Or what historian Lord Acton taught in his magisterial writings on liberty, this is Lord Acton talking, freedom is not the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought. I'm going to read that again because you know now I'm quoting somebody who's quoting somebody. This is Lord Acton. Freedom is not the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought. Back to Mr. Ganes. Yet having thrown authority over for the sake of reason, and now reason for the sake of desire, Americans find that the limitation of negative freedom becomes obvious. Those who set out to do what they like usually end up not liking what they've done. That is Oz Ganes from his book, A Time for Truth. Not written that long ago at all. It was actually published uh, by Baker Books in the year 2000. This is important because the things people went to the street to protest in the 60s were meaningful. We've taken them to bad extremes since. The selfishness of the 70s, the collusion of the 80s, and the way we've been reacting in fear to all these things since. It, It really does matter. But what I would say is that, to me, it's impossible to point a finger at a decade like the 1960s and say, look at all the bad things people did there, without asking the question, what caused it? And to stop at the 50s seems unfair, but the influence of World War II and other events in the 40s looms so large that I'm not going to go there. But it's enough to say that things that the adults did in the 1950s, things that happened that reflected an abuse of controlled substances, legal or illegal, Um, An exploitation in sexual behavior, whether accepted or not accepted, whether private or public, those things ultimately led people in the 1950s to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to take the freedoms that you held to yourself and I'm going to claim them as my own, and I'm going to walk out the door with a freedom from idea, freedom from your hypocrisy, freedom from all of your rules. And the biggest issue I see is that the question of what that freedom is going to be used for was never asked. You compare that to the pornography industry. You compare that to sexually transmitted diseases. You compare that to rampant divorce and illegitimacy and all the other things that I spoke about in the show on the sexual revolution. It becomes very clear that we went through that tumultuous time with only one half of the concept of freedom actively in play. Masters of None. Hey, it's Jay from Masters of None inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck, except for art. And Mike. And art. Totally. Check us out at mastersofnoneshow.com. Okay, so decades don't correlate to 10-year spans of time. Look at the film industry of the 1970s. I said I'd mentioned film earlier. I'm about to do it now. There's a notion, even internationally, 
the 1970s films in America, and even in Hollywood in America, represented something completely different. The change in the way movies are rated, the elimination of the motion picture production code, the establishment of the rating system, gave a lot of freedom to filmmakers, and that freedom exploded into films like The Godfather, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, even Dawn of the Dead. All of those represent a creative explosion coming out of what we would have called the sexual revolution. In other words, the creative force behind films of the 1970s didn't start in the 70s. They started in the 1960s, and you can see that with examples like The Graduate, Petulia, Bonnie and Clyde, and others. All films that weren't part of the 1970s from a calendar perspective. For the different drummer this week, I was going to pick a filmmaker, and I still believe I have. It just surprises me that by now I haven't gotten to citing a director. Because even though I don't ascribe to the auteur theory of filmmaking, I do believe that the director is the crucial creative force behind what we, the modern art of filmmaking. Instead, today I want to cite someone who's recently passed away and inspired me to make sure that as soon as I possibly could, I wanted to record a different drummer to honor film editor D.D. Allen. I could be overstating it a little bit if I say that D.D. Allen changed the entire game of filmmaking forever. I don't really want to overstate it, but it's hard to ignore the quality and caliber of her work, and it's hard to ignore the impact and influence she had, particularly in America, on the way films are made. Dee Dee Allen's collaborations, from a director perspective, include a very impressive list. Robert Wise, Elia Kazan, Paul Newman, Arthur Penn, George Roy Hill, Warren Beatty, John Hughes, Robert Redford, Curtis Hansen. That's right, she was editing movies even as little as just a few months ago before her death. So she has had the opportunity to collaborate with people who have a great deal of respect in the filmmaking industry from an artistic perspective, and she also had influence on the way other people have cut their movies. As an example, I just want to talk a little bit about film editing in general. If you get past the director's chair, you're faced with two people who, in my mind, have an equal impact on the artistry of filmmaking. One of them, surely the more obvious of the two, is the director of photography. We don't have a whole lot of trouble imagining what the cinematographer contributes to the making of motion pictures. So, I'm going to set that aside. The other one is the film editor. Unlike other visual arts, where the artist himself controls the display of the image, the film editor has a great deal to do with how the photography that has gone into the making of a movie is put together. If you get the pacing wrong, if you get the point of view wrong, if you create jump cuts that are not wanted or fail to create jump cuts that are necessary, you can destroy the entire viewer experience of a film simply with the quality of the editing. Let me offer a quick example that doesn't involve Dee Dee Allen. I want to mention two people. First off, Richard Kahn, who we think of as being the film editor for um, Steven Spielberg, a great example of someone whose contributions to Spielberg's films, particularly movies like Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, makes a huge difference, both in building suspense and in delivering the uh, emotional payoff. The other one I want to mention is Carol Littleton. We think of Carol Littleton, uh, by and large, I think of her as being the film editor for Lawrence Kasdan, where there's some films that maybe we uh, 
we view as being a little bit overbloated, movies like perhaps Grand Canyon, there are other films that beyond any doubt are really tight, really tight and compelling. Even if you're not a big fan of the subject matter, movies like Body Heat, the uh, film noir, and uh, The Big Chill. And Carol Littleton actually has a lot to do with the fact that there's any music cues in The Big Chill at all. The idea was not to have that much music from the baby boomer generation from the 60s and early 70s throughout the movie, but when Littleton was editing the film, she says she was editing the film to those sounds. She was listening to music as she worked and ended up intentionally or more likely unintentionally having that rhythm present in the way the film feels and flows. And it was a very easy decision for the director, Kasdan, to obtain the rights to the music as much as he could and to drop those music cues into the film because the film already reflected that kind of pacing. The question I want to ask is, if I were to grant that um, there's a difference between E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, if you look at E.T. from the perspective of the films around it, it's different. It's not just different in terms of screenplay and subject matter. It's not just different in the sense that it perhaps is targeting a younger audience. There's something else going on there. The editing style of the film is markedly different, and that shouldn't be a surprise because Carol Littleton was the editor of that particular Steven Spielberg project and not Richard Kahn. So let me ask you a question. Who do you think was the film editor for The Color Purple? Another dramatic, serious, not necessarily action-packed summer blockbuster movie by Steven Spielberg. Who edited The Color Purple? Just by remembering the film, just by looking at the film, do you have a sense whether that was cut by the same person who cut E.T. or cut by the same person who cut any of the Indiana Jones films? To me, it's obvious. The Color Purple is cut a lot more like Jaws than E.T. And despite the fact that the material isn't high tension, high suspense, it was cut that way because the editor was Richard Kahn. One of the earliest films that Dee Dee Allen edited was Odds Against Tomorrow, a film directed by Robert Wise, and a movie I haven't seen. It's a heist caper. But I want to start with that, just to mention it, because Dee Dee Allen's you know, earliest experiences collaborating with directors you know, included the blessing of working with a director who himself had performed the film editor's jobs before. Robert Wise was the film editor for Orson Welles' film, Citizen Kane. So clearly, collaborating with somebody who knew exactly what the editing profession could offer to a filmmaker. I could go through the list of her movies. I encourage you to do so if you have never done it before. And call out the big names. Bonnie and Clyde, Serpico, Slapshot, The Hustler. It's not hard to find seminal films that were edited by Dee Dee Allen. But instead, I want to focus on just four. And I want to focus on four not just because of how important they are to me personally, but also because of the range they represent. Slaughterhouse-Five, Dog Day Afternoon, Reds, and The Breakfast Club. Dee Dee Allen contributed in significant ways to all of these films. I think Slaughterhouse-Five is unfairly underregarded as a movie. If George Roy Hill failed to accomplish what we expected, it's because what we expected was impossible. I look at Slaughterhouse-Five, the movie, the same way I look at A Clockwork Orange, the movie. How in the world could you ever effectively film the book? So if you start off by accepting the fact that there is no way this can be accomplished, you have to look at the film on its own merits. Look at the film as film, and not at the film as if it should be a representation of Vonnegut's book. And what you'll find is a lot of very aggressive, very creative, and very effective film editing. In fact, of all the movies that Dee Dee Allen has edited, if I wanted to introduce someone to what she was capable of, I would start with Slaughterhouse-Five, because Slaughterhouse-Five is probably the loudest in terms of the impact of the editor on the film itself. 
Dog Day Afternoon, the Sidney Lumet movie, takes us in the other extreme. Alan had a huge impact on the pacing, the feel, and the tension in the movie about a bank robbery that didn't succeed, about a potentially violent film with relatively little violence in it, about tough guys taking over a bank who didn't turn out to be tough guys at all. All of those sort of undercurrents of uncertainty are well represented and completely supported by D.D. Allen's editing style. And yet, if you are unfamiliar with the mechanics of editing, you might miss it altogether. Reds is one of the most impressive films of its length that I've ever seen. At three hours and 20 minutes long, it is a very difficult thing to hold a film of that scope together. This is a film with a cast of literally dozens of very recognizable stars, all of whom get their moment in the spotlight. And D.D. Allen took, I think, a lot of pride in making sure that even if an actor only had moments on the screen, even if their role was smaller than a cameo, that she did everything she could to protect that actor and put them in the best possible light, regardless how few takes she had to work with in terms of stitching the film together. The other thing that impresses me about Reds is that by this point, she had enough esteem and clout and resources to be not just the uh, lead film editor on that project, but also the executive producer of that project. And if you've never seen the movie Reds, it's worth watching for reasons that are much bigger than Mrs. Allen's contributions. But when you're watching it, think about how difficult it is to hold a a three-hour and 18-minute film together, and I think you'll be impressed. Finally, beyond any question in my mind, The biggest issues in all of the John Hughes films I've seen are editing. John Hughes movies are typically regarded for the writing, because John Hughes is first and foremost a writer, and also for the actors and their actors' characterizations. So it's all about the character, it's all about the story, and it's all about who's doing the acting. And beyond any doubt, Breakfast Club stands out as the best edited film of all of the John Hughes movies that were made. It is, in fact, the film editing that is one of the things I like least about Sixteen Candles, Uh, Otherwise, I find Sixteen Candles to be a wonderful, nostalgic uh, comedy, a film that I love and enjoy watching. But The Breakfast Club is, first off, more difficult to edit, and second off, a much better delivery. And the difference is Dee Dee Allen. Think about it for a moment. You've got a five-central-character movie with two extra characters in the, uh, the principal and the janitor. You have only fleeting moments of moms and dads. They're almost not a factor in the plot whatsoever. And these five characters, with the occasional guest appearance from the authority figures, spend almost the entire film in one room, inside a library. Beyond the momentary excess that you'll see in a couple of the montage sequences, essentially, this film is told in a very straightforward, dramatic way. There are comic payoffs, but it's essentially a drama set in a single room. All the challenges that you would imagine Sidney Lumet faced when he was trying to put together a film of 12 Angry Men are apparent here in The Breakfast Club. And yet, I think when I remember The Breakfast Club, and I would imagine when you remember the movie The Breakfast Club, you don't remember it with a sense of claustrophobia. It didn't seem like it was locked in and tight. Now, granted, this very wealthy suburban Chicago high school had a pretty big library with lots of room. And on more than one occasion, they were able to escape their confines and wander around a little bit. But still, a film that should have felt like it was suffocating under its own premise didn't. And a lot of that has to do with the pace established by Dee Dee Allen in the editing and the way her use of the images that were shot by John Hughes and his camera crew opened that movie up. I remember being asked once in journalism school if I had the opportunity to interview anybody in the world, um, who would you pick? And, you know, my first choices were, I think the obvious ones, 
in my mind, uh, the opportunity to interview Jesus Christ is something that I would never turn down. I would never turn my back on. But the professor quickly reeled all of us in and said, hey, you Genghis Khan guys, you Jesus Christ guys, somebody who's living right now. And of course, back then, Dee Dee Allen was very much alive. She had probably um, not even finished The Breakfast Club yet, or it was around the same time The Breakfast Club would have come out. And I remember saying, oh, then this is a no-brainer. I would like to interview Dee Dee Allen, because I believe I'm going to learn as much or more about the art of filmmaking from somebody who's doing the kind of in-the-trenches sort of tasks, who's taken something that was viewed as a, as a technical, kind of a commodity kind of a, of a contribution to filmmaking, and elevated it to an art form where when I watch the Oscars, I watch for Best Picture, I watch for Best Director, I pay attention to the acting categories. But once you get beyond what we consider to be the big five or six awards, I view the editor Oscar as being every bit as important, if not more important, than the screenwriter's and the photography. And a lot of the reason I feel that way is because of today's different drummer, D.D. Allen. Thank you for listening to this inappropriate conversation with an overview of the decades. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.